Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today we will be talking to Amy Valella, who is, uh, she was one of the original Justice Democrats. She lost her race. She has a really powerful personal story that led her into politics because unfortunately her daughter passed away pretty much as a direct result of us not having a universal healthcare system. And um, so, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about that, her life experience, what led her to this point, what made her channel what was like really intense, deep emotional pain into something positive. And by the way, that was inspired by Nina Turner. Um, she's told that story before. So yeah. uh, now she's running again for office. Great. Honestly, she's, I mean, I was going to say, I don't like to play favorites, but I don't mind playing favorites. She's one of my favorites, <laughs> seriously, of all the candidates yeah. who were running. So uh, really looking forward to talking to her. Before we get into that, though, um, so there's the hearings going on right now for Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, she's replacing Stephen Breyer in the Supreme Court, or hopefully she'll replace Stephen Breyer in the Supreme Court. And uh, in this committee hearing to approve her, you have, you know, the Republicans are generally going on the offense and trying to pick apart her record and trying to get sound bites for their next elections. And the Democrats are all playing defense and playing patty cakes. And there's a lot of cringe stuff going on all over the place. True. Um, you know, I, I think the Cory Booker stuff is really over the top. It's I mean, he's just amazing. like, you're the best person ever. <laughs> <laughs> and don't get, don't get it wrong. Like, I would vote for her if I was there. I've, yeah. I've seen her record. She's the best of all the options that were given. She's by Indeed. far and away the best. Yeah. Uh, but it's just like, bro, reel it in. Like, like at yeah, least 27%. Position, you know, this isn't like, he's, he's fanboying in a way that feels more like sort of tiger beat or something yeah, like that it, than, it, you know, an, a real evaluation of someone who is going to have an immense amount of power. And you could argue that's a, like a backlash to the Republican hackery, but just because there's Republican hackery doesn't mean you need to do Democratic hackery in response to it. You know what I mean? It's just embarrassing. It, it's very embarrassing. Anyway, there's a lot of embarrassment to go around in this hearing. I've covered some of it. Uh, so we got this brilliant new little clip from the hearing. This is Ted Cruz trying to play a gotcha game. Let's take a look at the video. Able to comment on them. Okay, if if, if I can change my gender, if I can be a woman, and then an hour later, if I decide I'm not a woman anymore, I guess I would lose Article Three standing. Uh, tell me, does that same principle apply to other protected characteristics? For example, I'm, I'm an Hispanic man. Could, could I decide I was an Asian man? W would I have the ability to be an Asian man and challenge Harvard's discrimination because I made that decision? Senator, I'm not able to answer your question. You're asking me about hypotheticals and um, well, I'm asking you how you would assess standing if I, if I came in and said, I have decided I identify as an Asian man. I would assess standing the way I assess other legal issues, which is to listen to the arguments made by the parties, consider the relevant precedents uh, and the constitutional principles involved and make a determination. She handles them pretty well there. She handles it well. So what's your initial reaction to that? I mean, it's very clear what's going on. Like, they all are just posturing for whatever they think is going to be the hot issue for cable news that night so they can get their faces on TV. So Cruz, he was caught immediately after that on Twitter name searching himself. So the whole point, he was just trying to go viral and he was name searching would, himself. That's been verified by somebody who was near him. What percentage of Ted Cruz's time on Twitter is spent engaged in that exact same activity because that's what they're all about. I mean, 
this isn't relevant. It's not related to her record. It's not related to any particular case. It's just an attempt to feed into what you think is red meat for the base and paint this like ridiculous caricature of her and of Democrats. But the ironic thing is, you know, the point that they always try to make is like, oh, Democrats are obsessed and the left's obsessed with race and the left's obsessed with gender. But in this hearing, they clearly are the side that is completely obsessed with race and gender and identity issues. The thing the thing that frustrates me is that it's so obvious that they're all just trying to get little gotchas and get their little sound bites for their next election yeah. or to get on Fox News that night. And another good example of this was Marsha Blackburn. She was reading from a decision that Katanji Brown Jackson had on a specific case. And she quotes Katanji Brown Jackson as saying, um, because of the pandemic, we should let out all the criminals in Washington, D.C. And she's asked her, like, why would you say a thing like that? That's crazy. You want to release all the criminals? And Katanji Brown Jackson is like, two sentences after that, I'm saying that to then make the point, it would be crazy to release all the prisoners. And of course we shouldn't release all the prisoners. So she was trying to make the opposite point, but they, she quoted her out of context. Yeah. Because either she thinks Katanji Brown Jackson is insane or she's insane and she's just trying to score some cheap political points. They're trying to paint this portrait of her as somehow like soft on crime. And so she plucks this quote out of context that Katanji Brown Jackson is very easily able to parry because she says in literally the next sentence, I say in this instance, I because of the crimes that were committed, this person should be kept in prison. And in fact, that was what the ruling was. She was to keep this person in prison. So even like the outcome of the case disputes the notion that she wanted to let everybody out of prison during COVID. My personal favorite moment, though, was um, came from like Lindsey Graham and John Cornyn, who one of the parts of her record that I'm most impressed by is that as a public defender, she represented a number of detainees at Guantanamo Bay. Right. And then also when she left her position as a public defender and went to a corporate law firm, she also filed friend of the court briefs mm -hmm. in support of a couple of advocacy organizations that were um, opposing our, you know, unconstitutional principles of indefinite detention. So she was on the right side of those issues. And you had... Lindsey Graham creating this whole, you know, you talk about a made-for-TV moment, having a complete meltdown over, you know, his lust for more war crimes and more torture um, and even standing up and stalking out of the mm -hmm, room. Mm -hmm. And then you have John Cornyn saying to her, why would you ever say that Donald Rumsfeld and George W. Bush were war criminals? How could you? Based. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, actually, this is like one of my favorite things about her. She kind of parries and doesn't really, she's just like, I don't well, really know what you're talking about. And that was on behalf of my clients. And that doesn't necessarily reflect my views. And so I was a little bit, I was a little frustrated too with the liberal response, which is so feckless rather than being like, if she said that she's right, they were like, well, that wasn't really her view. She didn't really think that. Well, it, but I, so I, I covered this as well. Yeah. And the I don't know if you saw the follow up to that, but uh, Dick Durbin chimed in and gave yeah. the context. That's exactly what happened. And the context makes it oh so much sweeter because basically the point is she, she didn't call George W. Bush a war criminal. There was an official filing in court that he literally is a war criminal. So she didn't call him that. It's just like, no, you actually are that because there's a filing. There's a habeas petition that says you are that. 
because the person she was representing was fucking tortured by them, mm -hmm. which is a literal war crime. Yes. So it's not, it wasn't, it's like not, point is, it's not conjecture, it's not opinion, it's like fact in a court filing. Right. And so for them to, yeah, but you're right. I mean, I like the way she handled it. Because well, she you can't, had to handle it that of way. Of course. Yeah. I like the way she, I, like, I'm not, like, I'm sure there are some people who are, why didn't you stand up and say, like, hell yeah, he's a I war mean, criminal. I like, she's not me. She's not me. Well, her. it would also tank her chances of getting on the court <laughs> exactly. in an instant. So she played it right. But yeah, you're right about uh, more people in our position or in the media or other politicians could be like, well, he is that. Right. right. Well, and the problem is, of course, that they can't talk about W as a war criminal anymore because we had to rehabilitate him to somehow prove, you know, that Trump was worse. It's like they could both be really bad. It's OK. You don't yeah. have to rehabilitate W into this Michelle Obama's bestie and grandfatherly figure who paints all day. So now let me give you my controversial take. OK. So um, the point Ted Cruz is making is obviously ridiculous because there are no transracial cases in front of the Supreme Court or anything like that. If anything, it was, what's his name? Mike Braun the other day, Senator, came out and said like, yeah, I think you should leave interracial marriages to the states. Oh, that was so, so he's saying it's okay if like Mississippi wants to ban interracial marriage, they should be allowed to get over it. Like, what's the problem? So that, that's more of like a real issue going on right now. There are no transracial cases in front of the Supreme Court and he's trying to play gotcha and be like, isn't the left so stupid? But I actually am one of the few on the left who takes the unpopular position of like, Transracialism? I don't really necessarily think there's anything wrong with so it. You're, you're taking the pro-Rachel Dolezal, pro-Elizabeth Warren stance? <laughs> pro-Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> <laughs> so you're Elizabeth Warren stand now, um, that's what you're telling me. So, and I actually, I had this this conversation with Vosh. We sort of debated this a little bit too. We didn't really debate it. We just discussed it. Um, I can't think of any objection to transracialism that wouldn't also apply to transgenderism. And well, here's the problem. Here's, here's well, I can think of a few actually, but there's well, very few. How do few. you actually feel about Rachel Dolezal? Let's start with that. Um, so, I mean, look, I'm uh, I'm a product of my environment like anybody else. Mm -hmm. So my gut reaction is the same as most people, where I'm like, well, that's fucking weird. Yeah, right. You know, mm -hmm. like of course. But when you look at the fact, she actually was like working for the NAACP and did a lot of good things for the black community. Yeah, she she clearly had taken some steps to actually be like, you know, a good, a so good member of this community. She's saying, this is what I identify with. And she's lived that to the maximum amount she possibly can. Now, one of the arguments against my position would be, if this thing was really real, there'd be more than just a handful of examples. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, there's only, what, hand, literally a handful that we could count in the whole country, whereas uh, transgender stuff has existed forever. I right. mean, you go back, there are, you know, old school historical record stuff of, like, trans people and communities around the age zero BC, or I guess it's not BC if it's zero, but you get the point. So, that's one argument against it. And dysmorphia but, is a real phenomenon. So... There are, I do think, I don't think that they're exactly the same They're not exactly thing, the same, no. But what I think about is where it gets complicated is if race is a social construct, which it is, invented categories, and, you know, we all sort of accept that framing, then when you go to, okay, well, if it's a social construct, why can't you move across those lines? And then people are like, absolutely not. It makes sense to draw to to draw a hard line in that instance of, you know, how you're identifying and which side of the divide you ultimately fall on. So while, look, Elizabeth Warren is silly and Rachel Dolezal is also feels sort of like ridiculous and you're trying to be something that you're you really aren't. 
I can imagine hypothetical, theoretical examples that might make more sense. Like you could imagine a child adopted into a family of a different race where this is their culture. This is their. We don't even need to go to that. I mean, if if Eminem came out next week and was like, I identify as black. I think most people be like, yeah, we kind of knew that. Nobody would be like, oh, I don't know. How could you? No, I think there people, would be some. I but, think people would be like, mm, I don't think people would like but, that. Okay, but, but, but what's the main say, objection? But what, what I am trying to say, though, is that I do think that there are hypothetical, theoretical examples where people would more or less accept like, oh, your, you know, ethnic lineage is white, but you're raised by a Latino family and that's your your culture and that's, you know, your community and that's your upbringing and these are your people. Like, yeah, okay, you you count. We get it. Yeah. What would be the main objection if Eminem came out and said that? The people who do object would say what? But you're not black. Well, what happens when a trans woman comes out and says, I'm trans or I'm a woman? Right. And they were biological male. A lot of people go, but your biological sex is male. Right. So it's a very similar thing. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Mm -hmm. There are differences. Again, I don't want to... I, I gave you one example of a difference. The fact that empirically speaking, like there's just not as many people who identify as transracial as identify as transgender. So maybe that's an argument that it's not as real or certainly not as pervasive. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of like, I, I'll say this, 85 to 90% of the arguments that one would use against transracialism are the same arguments you could trot out against transgender folks. Yeah, and but clearly, clearly the point here from Ted Cruz and the right is to paint this portrait of like the left's insane. And I mean, that's the same thing that they always did with gay marriage is they'd be like, what's next? Marrying, marrying a, a dog? Yeah. yeah. And and so that's the portrait he's trying to paint for no other reason what? than to like get his hit on Tucker Carlson or whatever. Yeah. But the funny thing is, I'm like the only person on the left who would even entertain that conversation, the point I just made. Like everybody else on the left is actually the most hostile to the idea of transracialism. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, and there is, you know, it's that in interesting dichotomy because of like I, I, everybody's pro-trans gender rights, but not. <laughs> I think it's because people don't want, they don't want that caricaturish view of like, oh, well, you'll just say like, I, I can identify mm. as popcorn next or whatever. I, well, no, I, I think that they don't think it's real. I think that a lot of people don't think it's real. And the other thing is, no, there actually is like xenogenders is now a thing, which is like I identify as just something totally non-human. Like there was a thing online recently. There's some creator who identifies as a deer. So it's funny that that even that is it's not full. It's not really all that accepted, but it's more accepted than even the transracialism thing. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So but again, we're like we're the only ones having this conversation. Ted Cruz is talking as if the entire left is like. Yes, well, let's, let's right. do this, and let's sue people over it, and let's get it to the, Supreme Court. To the Supreme Court. By the way, if that got to the Supreme Court, you know how quickly that case would be rejected? Yeah. It would be rejected so fucking fast, it would be comical. Well, and I think the reason, I guess the reason why this is off the table for a lot of the left is because there is this direction of, like, becoming so woke that you harden the racial lines, you know, and, like, these categories— you know, you see the, the, what is a, a caricaturish view, but also is real in certain circles among this sort of like woke consultant class of this is what it means to be this race. And these are the characteristics that you have. And this is what whiteness entails. And, you know, like math is white supremacy, that sort of thing. We're actually getting to this is a good transition to our next topic. So in a sense, they've hardened those racial lines and made them more essential so it makes it harder to even entertain this idea when, you know, of course, 
it's very challenging to to grapple with hard racial lines when race is, in fact, a social construct. But that was always one of the main conservative arguments against trans people, though, too, is that, wait, you guys are telling me gender is largely a social construct until you're trans and you want to identify as a female, in which case you are in line with all of the traditional definitions of what it is to be feminine. That was always one of the conservative arguments against trans issues. Mm. It's like, wait, which is it? Is gender a social construct or is it it's real as a heart attack and you want to embody and you want the ideal feminine, you know, mm. stereotype or whatever. Right. You know, or archetype is the word I was looking yeah. for. Yeah, I mean, I think those conversations actually happen across um, ideological lines. True, but I've seen that more as an objection from conservatives to transgender stuff where they're like, wait, I thought it was a social construct, so why do you care if you're male or female? But it's like, you say it's a social construct until you want to it totally embody the archetype of that which is female or that which is male. And in which case, now you're more essentialist about, mm-hmm. you know what I'm what saying? What gender is, right. yeah. yeah. And, the, and you're, yeah, wanting to embrace this sort of stereotypical yeah. notion of femininity. I think this stuff is interesting. I don't think uh, much hinges on it, which is why what Ted Cruz is saying is ridiculous. Ted Cruz was like offering this up. Oh, in good faith? Provoking yeah. good faith suggestions yeah, yeah, yeah. for debate and I'm intellectual sure. discussion. I don't think so. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, this was interesting. So, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is um, the sort of thinker behind the 1619 Project at the New York Times, become very famous for this, got into an exchange online that was pretty head-scratching and, again, fairly caricature-ish of the particular political view that she represents. So let's go ahead and put this tweet up on the screen. So this is in an online debate about tipping and whether you should just, and this was actually started by my friend um, Torre, and I'll get to that in a minute, and about whether you should just like baseline, you always tip 20% or 30%, really kind of no matter what the service is. And this sparked a heated debate. And so Nicole Hannah-Jones jumps in here to add this to the conversation. Tipping is a legacy of slavery. And if it's not optional, then it shouldn't be a tip, but simply included in the bill. Have you ever stopped to think why we tip? Like why tipping is a practice in the U.S. and almost nowhere else. After slavery, forcing black people to work service jobs for tips was a way for white employers not to pay for black labor. Now waiters remain the employees today who earn less than minimum wage. The shame for tipping is on the government and employers, but not on the customer. I tip, and if I don't, I leave a note as to why, but telling black people that we should tip regardless of quality of service when we know we too often do not get high quality service is asinine to me. So um, Edward Enweso Jr. says here, is she saying not tipping is a form of anti-racism? This has to be some of the most lib shit I have ever heard in my life. Your thoughts, Kyle? Um, when she says, I tip, but if I don't, that means she doesn't tip. Yeah. That's what that means. There is no, I tip, but if I don't. What do you mean, but if you don't? I've never not tipped in my life. Anybody who, there's even a small chance I'm supposed to tip, I tip. And she leaves them a note. Is it on, like, the historical roots of tipping Can you imagine? You're some, <laughs> like, imagine you're... You work for less than minimum wage, and you're serving her, and, you know, you're trying your best, and you're also trying to pay the bills and keep the lights on and all that stuff, take care of your kids, whatever it might be. And then you not only do you not get a tip, you get like lectured about the history you get a of this note and why you should be the- thankful that you weren't tipped and that this is part of a legacy of slavery. And so- right, that, she, that it's, actually, it's actually really righteous that she's not right. tipping because this is taking a stand against the legacy of slavery. 
So this strikes me. It's just an excuse to be a non-tipper or a shitty tipper. That's how I read it. That's now maybe I'm I'm doing too much uh, psychoanalysis here and reading too deeply into it, but that's definitely my interpretation of well, what you're it's, saying. There. It's very simple. If you don't tip, you're an asshole. Like you can't wrap it in some like anti-racist political project. Some fake, fake virtuousness. Yeah, fake virtuousness. And I think actually um, Edward's comment there that it's the most lib shit ever. I think is also really appropriate because it speaks to the type of liberal who is more interested in their personal actions and virtuousness than in any sort of like broader project. Because look, I also think that the structure of forcing people to like dance and perform you for you in order to get a tip and have a living wage is an absurd system. I think that everyone should earn a living wage, period. But that's not like a project for me to personally engage in or protest against by not tipping and screwing over the very people that you're supposedly most concerned about. So it's this weird attempt to like virtue signal your way out of being an asshole by just not tipping the disproportionately black and brown servers who you don't feel have performed to your standards. And that's the key point. She could have said that, but she didn't say that. She could have made the point, look, right now this is the system that we have, so I have to tip because it's the right thing to do and people, you know, deserve the money, et cetera, et cetera. But honestly, the entire tipping system is total bullshit and we need to tear it down and we need a law that's a no exception to the minimum wage law where nobody makes the whatever it is, $3 and however many cents and then you get tips on top of that. And so everybody needs to get paid a living wage. That should be our project. That should be what we're fighting for, et cetera, et cetera. She could have said that. She didn't say that. She didn't say that at all. There was none of that in there. It was just like... I tip, but if I don't, it's because <laughs> I leave slavery a note. happened. <laughs> I leave a note about the roots oh of tipping and slavery because I'm sure that's really helpful to the person who is trying to serve you. So I actually talked, so I noticed when this was shared that it was my friend Torre who had sparked this mm-hmm. conversation. So I talked to him a little bit about it yesterday and Torre is very mischievous and he's kind of a shit disturber. And he said that every few years he'll bring up this topic of tipping because it really gets people going, which is kind of an interesting insight. So what does he say? What did he insight. So his tweet that sparked this whole conversation was, if you go to a restaurant and you get served, you should tip 20%, period. If you get bad service, then speak to the manager. Don't dock the tip and walk out with saying without saying what went wrong. That's whack which I agree with. I, I even go a step further. I won't even complain if it's bad service. It happens sometimes. Yeah. Just and, tip and walk out. That's and it. here's the other thing is a lot of times, um, it's oftentimes not the server's fault. Like there could be a fuck up in the kitchen. It could be really busy. They could have been yep. overbooked. It's a very difficult job. And the other thing, and Tere made this point to me as well. He's like, I just haven't had this experience that apparently other people are routinely having of quote-unquote bad service where it's so bad that you're like, I'm not even going to leave a tip. Even if it is, I don't care. I'm still going to tip. Yeah. Who cares? Right. Like, their livelihood depends on this shit. Agreed. They could have a bad day. They could have figured out their dog died, their mom died. Like, who gives a fuck? Who cares? Yeah. fucking tip. But his point is basically, like, that this epidemic of bad service is really just an excuse for people to be cheap assholes. That's probably true. Like, it doesn't really—it's not really a major problem. Most servers are doing their damnedest because they rely on tips and they they want to do well. And so he's saying that this whole— narrative of there's a massive problem with bad service and people who are just lazy and don't want to do their job is also com- kind of fabricated and just an excuse for people. But to be people also, though, might not have that much money. So it's hard for them to tip a lot. You know what I'm saying? That's mm-hmm. also a thing that probably exists. But then, oh, then you come full circle back to your original point of like, 
Let's just everybody have a system a where everybody wage. makes a fucking living wage. Yeah, it's not that difficult. Yes, indeed. So there you go. But yeah, apparently um, conversations about tipping are highly fraught and controversial and people have very, very hard opinions on it. I did not. Ex- the, it was out of left field. The This is from a legacy of slavery thing. And by the way, <laughs> let me I'll, this will be maybe my most controversial point. Even if that's true, I don't care. Fucking tip. Right. Just well, fucking tip. Of course. That's it. Yes. Yeah, like, because you're not fighting that legacy of slavery by screwing over the people that are most screwed over by right. the system. Like, exactly. You're, you're just making things worse. And exactly. your note about how this is anti-racist, your, you know, non-tipping is silly. All right. So let's go ahead and jump into the interview now. So we're going to be talking to Amy Valella. She ran for Congress in her district in Las Vegas. She lost once before. She's now running again. She has an amazing personal story. Uh, She's a crusader for all the right policies. She's one of my uh, one of my favorite candidates who ran with the Justice Democrats last time. So let's go ahead and talk to Amy. Joining us now, Medicare for All advocate and candidate for Congress, Amy Valella. Great to have you, Amy. I'm so glad to be here. It's good to see you guys. Um, Just catch everybody up off the top over the dynamics of your race. You ran once before. Uh, We were just talking about how Cori Bush is kind of the inspiration for the candidate who took two cracks at it and gets across the finish line the second time around. So tell us about the dynamics of your race and why you decided to take another shot at it. Well, you know, since 2018, we really learned a lot about running progressive campaigns. Um, a lot of people may not realize what I've done since 2018, but, uh, you know, besides running uh, as a co-chair for Bernie Sanders and being a, 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 a surrogate for him across the nation, um, I also have been helping other progressives to get into office, like Corey and like Jamal Bowman. And, you know, we've learned a lot since 2018 on how to actually run a very successful progressive campaign. And in this race, this is really a race that has a clear path to victory. Um, We've made a lot of progress in Nevada, um, especially since 2018. We've seen uh, how the Democrats in Nevada are actually moving more left. Um, And we saw that with the landslide victory for Bernie um, after the caucus. Um, Recently, we had a slate of progressives take over the state party. Um, So there's a lot of excitement and movement within this district. Um, It is a district that is very diverse, and it's one of the districts that's hit the hardest by the crisis that we're facing, um, not only in Nevada, but across the country. Um, So we are really poised um, for victory in this race. Uh, It's definitely a race to be watching. And, you know, our win number is very attainable. Uh, We're only, our win number is around 24,000 votes. So it is definitely a race that can be won, and uh, I'm up for the challenge. Amy, as I said to Crystal in the intro, uh, I don't mind playing favorites, and you're one of my favorites in terms of uh, the slate of candidates that we ran originally. And uh, I am ecstatic that you're running again. Um, I want you to talk a little bit. Some people who are listening now might not be as familiar with you um, as I am and may, might not have seen my previous segments or our previous interview, um, tell everybody why it is you're running, what got you involved in politics and the, the tragedy that spurred you to turn the pain into action. You know, really my, my entry into politics started far before I ever realized I would be involved in politics. You know, like most Americans, I believed that politics were for people that came from a certain pedigree. And I definitely did not fit that pedigree. 
I mean, I was raised in poverty. Um, I later, you know, went through poverty as a single mom. I know what it's like to be on Medicaid, on WIC, on food stamps. I know what it's like to be homeless with my children. Um, I've also watched my car being repoed. I mean, I can go down the list. We can make a book about it. But I know what that struggle is like. And it's tough trying to pick between, you know, the electric bill to pay that or the gas bill. You know, if I pay one or the other, do I have a friend that I can take my kids and I over to bathe? I mean, that struggle is real. And, you know, I bought into that false narrative that if you just work hard enough that you're safe. So I put myself through college in the evenings. I was working full-time, going to full-time college, and thought this was the pathway to secure you know, happiness and success for my family. And I thought it was my way out of that struggle. And at the height of my career, when I, after I'd graduated and I had remarried to my husband, who was an immigrant from Brazil and a, an officer in the Air Force, and, and I was a CFO, I was an executive. And we were living that, that executive lifestyle. I thought, gosh, we finally made it. Like, whew, I mean, everything's good now. My kid, my, you know, my daughter, Shalyn, was in college. My son was about to graduate. Everything's looking great. And then I experienced tragedy that so many other Americans experience in this country. Um, in 2015, my daughter, Shalyn, decided to move back home to finish her schooling to become an RN. Um, she was an honor roll student, full of life. She was funny. Uh, she was just so, such an amazing daughter and just brought so much joy to our family to have all of us back under one roof again. And when she arrived from her drive of 22 hours uh, from Kansas City, she kept on complaining about her leg being swollen and red. And she kept on saying, look at my my leg, mom, it's, it's, it's swollen. And I was like, yeah, you know, you probably just sat on it wrong. Shalyn, let's give it a few days, you know, see what happens. And, and if we have to go see, be seen, then we'll, we'll take you to be seen. And uh, I was on my way out of town for a business meeting. So it was a very quick exchange. And I thought we had all the time in the world ahead of us. And I, on the way down, I got a call from her that her leg was really in a lot of pain and she was crying. And I said, well, just go be seen, Shalyn. And I got another phone call when she was at the emergency room uh, at intake. And this time there, I'm in a meeting and I get called out and she's telling me, mom, they're asking about insurance. You know, they're, they're saying it's gonna be very expensive. You know, I can leave now and it won't cost anything. And, and I said, Shalyn, don't worry about the insurance. You know, we'll deal with this later. They had her calling up my husband's insurance, which she didn't qualify for because as with everything, if it's not universal, there's loopholes. And for um, military families between the ages of 21 and 23, our children don't qualify mm. unless they're actively going to school. And remember, she's moving out here to continue school. Semester hadn't started. So she didn't qualify. And so, I, you know, she said, okay, I'm going to be seen. There's something really wrong with my leg. And uh, she gets in the back and I get another phone call. And I'm like, what's going on, Shalyn? And she's crying this time. And She's telling me, mommy, they're not helping me. I'm asking for testing. I'm asking for something for the pain. It's so painful, mommy. And they're telling me that I need to go get insurance and see a specialist. Mm. So Shalyn did just that. She went and, you know, applied for our state, uh, Nevada's expanded uh, Medicaid. And she was texting and texting me all the different places she was contacting for, uh, you know, a specialist. What we didn't know is that Shalyn had a blood clot. 
Shulin presented with every symptom and risk factor for a blood clot. Shulin was black. She had sickle cell trait. She was on birth control. She had just driven 22 hours on a healing ACL tear that she had just had, uh, you know, looked at before she got on the road. Uh, and she had a red swollen leg. And these are, everything I just mentioned are risk factors and symptoms of a blood clot. So instead of doing, you know, the necessary adequate medical screening, they did what's called a wallet biopsy and they do a screening so as to, you know, determine what, how much she can pay for. And uh, Shalin had to go back to Kansas City to finalize paperwork. And so she got on a plane and the plane dislodged the blood clot in her leg. And um, I got a call from her father a day or so after she landed, telling me that Shalin was clutching her chest and crying, Daddy, call 911. Call 911. My daughter lost consciousness in the back of an ambulance. I mean, I can't even see an ambulance now without being triggered. A painful and lonely, you know, uh, death, brain death. Uh, she went into massive, uh, uh, she had a massive uh, heart attack. And, uh, and I, by the time I got out there, she was on life support. And as uh, they would pump air into her lungs, her eyes would kind of flicker open. That's what they call overbreathing the vent. And all I kept on doing was just holding her hand and saying, Shalyn, you have to fight. You have to fight this. Fight, Shalyn. You know, just please don't die. And, you know, you see in the movies where people's lives just kind of flash before them. That really does happen. And everything was flashing before childhood and everything that was, I all the struggle and, you know, it came a point we knew that she was brain dead. And because they couldn't, uh, we couldn't salvage her organs for her major organs for donation, just her heart valve and, and other um, uh, body parts. Uh, I was able to hold her as she died. And I remember them telling me, you know, it's, it's going to be very uh, unpleasant. You can leave now why they were taking out the breathing tubes. And I was like, absolutely not. I was with her when she was born. And all I could do was hold her hand and just keep telling her mommy's right here. And then I climbed into bed and I, I held her. And I hadn't held her like that since she was a child. And uh, I remember just playing with her hair and just telling her and singing to her. And I just kept telling her, uh, you know, I love you, Shalyn. And at this point I knew injustice had happened. My sister was an RN at this hospital. And she had told me that this, that they should have screened. I understood, was starting to put the pieces together. Um, and I just remember as she was dying, I was crying out, just God, just take me, take me. I mean, why the struggle we've been through? Why now? Why me? Why, you know, let her live. And that is the moment, that very moment when she died, that old Amy died with her. And I knew at that point, in that grief that, you know, injustice had happened. I didn't know where that road was going to take me, but I knew that I was going to fight back. I tell you this story leading up to this because it wasn't just one thing. It was the lived experience of a working class citizen of this country that led to me getting to the point where I am now. And, you know, this happened in 2015, a few months after Bernie Sanders announced his run for office. 
And I remember when he first ran, my husband's coming through the house screaming, you know, Bernie Sanders running, Bernie Sanders. And I'm like, who the hell is Bernie Sanders? <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I was, you know, really stuck on it's a woman's point in time and history. And but then when he started speaking and I started listening, I'm like, what's this universal health care? And I actually was questioning it because I was like, how does that work? Because remember, I'm coming from the mindset of someone who's actually, you know, or, arranging and organizing for my companies to get insurance for the employees. Right. I'm like, what do you mean it's not through the, the, the through a company, right? And my husband said something that really stuck with me. He's like, if Shalin had been in Saudi Arabia or in Brazil, which we've been to many times because that's where his family's at, she would have had a better chance to survive. Wow. And I started researching and Googling this deaths from lack of insurance. And then I came across an, a, a video of Bernie Sanders in 1993, the year my daughter was born, talking about how people were dying from a lack of health ins her insurance. And I remember falling to my knees, screaming out in anger and just disgust that you knew you knew people were dying and you did absolutely nothing about it. And I said, I am going to do something about it. And that is, was the beginning of my political journey. So because we have just a kitchen table it for everybody, and that was a very powerful story that Crystal and I are both tearing up over here, but because we have a for-profit healthcare system, um, she passed away. Like you said, they did what's called a wallet biopsy. You know, and they saw, oh, you don't have insurance. You might want to take this other path. And what she needed was immediate attention. And it always frustrates me when people say, you know, there's waiting lines in Canada or there's waiting lines in these single payer countries. And my response to that is, do you think there's not waiting lines here? Not only are there waiting lines here, but they're littered with about 45,000 dead bodies every single year. Because at least in those countries, what they do is they prioritize by need. Who needs the care? You're going to get the care. Here they go. How big's your wallet? Well, and that'll determine the care you line. get. I mean, for people who don't have insurance, there's no line even to get in oftentimes. That, right. And right. so as as you told that story, you know, this is a story I've told as well. Um, my, my father also potentially may be on that list of the 45,000 people who die every year because they don't have uh, health insurance. He had severe back pain and uh, he was dealing with it for a very long time, didn't do anything. Eventually he decided, you know what? I want to try to get this fixed. Now, my dad was not the most educated person in the world. And he thought that a chiropractor is like a doctor, doctor, like a real doctor. And so he would go to the chiropractor to get, uh, you know, his back worked on to hopefully heal the pain. And he went week after week after week. And the chiropractor would tell him like, just come back. We'll, we'll work that, that, you know, problem out. No problem. And, um, what happened is the pain didn't go away. And so he decided finally after, way too long, I got to go to the emergency room. So I went to the emergency room and they ran some tests and they immediately found out he had cancer and the pain he was feeling in his back all along was um, a tumor that had metastasized from his lungs to his back. And he, he was been a smoker for pretty much his entire life. And it was stage four cancer. It was very unlikely that he was going to survive. But the reason why he hesitated to go to the emergency room earlier was because at the time he didn't have insurance. Uh, so it's, it's possible. Now, I don't know if my dad did have insurance, would he definitely have gone to the emergency room? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know because honestly, oftentimes men in this country are, they don't, you know, they don't take care of their health in the best way possible. It's possible he still would have went to the chiropractor. I can't tell. I don't have a crystal ball, no pun intended, but, um, it's possible he makes that list too. And when you think of your story, which it's such a, it's, it's a very clear picture of what happened and what could have been, you know, 
you think there's 45,000 of these every year. And it just, like you said, it infuriates you. But you've spoken previously about how Nina Turner was one of the people who told you, take all that pain you feel and channel it to something productive that could actually really change, change the future and fix the country. Most definitely. Um, she was uh, a catalyst in me um, actually throwing the first ever Medicare for all healthcare rally in Las Vegas. I had met her at a um, at an event. So I, again, I was searching. I wanted to learn everything I could. So I went to a Medicare for all conference in New York City and where she was a speaker. And by chance, my husband met her in the elevator um, before she got onto the stage and told her the story of Shalin. And uh, so again, I was in newly grieving and I was sitting there in the audience and just taking all this in and um, you know, it was a bittersweet. It was like, it was so wonderful to see all of these people who were so like passionate about this, but it was also like, wow, like we have all these people working on it and we still don't have it. And I was sitting there thinking through this and then she gets on the stage and I had never heard her speak in, in public. And all of a sudden this, this force to be reckoned with comes on and she's talking about, you know, the need for healthcare and then she starts talking about, she had heard from this gentleman in the elevator a story about his daughter. And there's a moment where she goes, and in this great country, no 22-year-old should be dying from a lack of health care. And, you know, the tears were just streaming down my face because I had never heard someone say in a public forum that my daughter didn't deserve to die. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's, let's talk about what it would have taken to save her. We're talking about a couple thousand dollars. We're talking about a bedside ultrasound and some medication blood thinners. That's what we're talking about to save her life. But instead, you know, as somebody who has been a CFO and I, that's my background, I understand what goes on behind the closed doors. We're talking about risk assessment. And, you know, corporations, remember, the fiduciary responsibility is to increase the wealth of their shareholders. It's not to provide the best service and make sure everybody survives. It's to assess risk. And is it worth it not to give the optimum care because just the savings of not doing that for everyone in mass outweighs the cost of giving one optimum care, right? And that's why we have people who are, who are having to go through insurance companies and, and have insurance claims denied. They are making a risk assessment at every juncture. And if you don't believe that, you need to go and look at what they're filings with the SEC, right? They have to file those if they're publicly traded. And so they have a whole section in their financial statements on risk assessment. And when I read that, it's disgusting to me because we're talking about people's lives. I know it's some kind of just arbitrary number to most people, you know, $45,000, I mean, 45,000 people. Okay. It's 45,000 people, but let's think about that. If it's a number one and it's somebody that you love it's someone you care about, that's an astronomical number. And it's people's lives. We are hearing all the time about, you know, people's lives are on the line here. So we're gonna spend, you know, trillions of dollars and all these different means, and especially when it comes to warfare. But when it comes to 45,000 to 60,000 American lives every year dying from a lack of insurance, somehow we have a lack of outrage. Well, I'm outraged, I'm full, filled with righteous indignation. And it's time that we bring the, the, the urgency that's required in the fight for Medicare for all. Amy, what do you think it will take to get it done? 
because, you know, Kyle and I both followed, and I'm sure you did as well, what happened in California, where you've got super majority of Democrats in the legislature, you know, House, Senate. You've got Gavin Newsom, who not only is a Democrat, but ran on single payer and mocked the idea, mocked these other politicians who talk about it. But then when it comes down to it, they don't actually do it. The public wants it, supports it. The polls are really clear. Democrats have the power to do it. And then at the very last minute, the bill just gets pulled. Like they don't even take a vote on it to know who was on the right side and who was on the wrong side. Um, and of course, you know, no accident. And David Sirota did the the digging and the reporting on this, that the health insurance companies were flooding the Democratic Party's coffers with money, flooding Gavin Newsom's coffers with money, a number of other key legislators as well. So what will it take to actually get it done? Because that's so discouraging when you look at the state of California, you're like, even there, they can't do this. Well, you know, being a co-sponsor or saying that you support Medicare for all is just the first step. It's not the end goal, right? It's not, it's not saying that you're 100% for Medicare for all. You know, it's very simple to be a co-sponsor, but what are you actually doing once you're in to get it in, onto the floor and get it passed? You know, we had, and, and I want to caution everyone, listen, I am one of the fiercest Medicare for all activists that you'll probably ever come across. I am not going to do anything else in my life that is going to be more important or more, you know, of a, of a, a something that I'm going to concentrate on more than Medicare for all, because that is my whole purpose for being involved in politics, the, the entry, right? It's not the only issue because they're all intersectional, but it is very important to me. We have to not get discouraged. There is never, there's never going to be the perfect time, the perfect way of getting this done. We, we may not always agree on every single strategy, but we don't have the comfort and the privilege to sit back and wait for the perfect time to go into this with the perfect people. We have to be fighting and using every tool at our disposal every day. When getting into office, we have to get more people elected that are not bought out or not accepting that money. And in the meantime, what I see my pathway once I'm in Congress is I want to continue and increase the organizing on the ground. That's something that has gone a little bit on the wayside here in the last couple of years. We've had a lot of things thrown at us. There's been a lot of very important issues that we have been addressing, but we need to do both. We need to continue to organize on the ground and we need someone in Congress who is, I mean, this is my passion and this is what I am going to be my number one key, you know, uh, point that I'm going to be working on in Congress, as well as, you know, Green New Deal, immigration and housing. Those are some of my key areas of focus. Um, we need to, to put the work in. I mean, and it's not just saying I'm a co-sponsor and then messaging out to your constituents and talking about affordability. It has to be single payer Medicare for all system that is 100% free at the point of service. No premiums, no co-pays, no deductibles, no hidden fees, no questions asked from cradle to grave, right? Everyone in, no one out. If it's not that system, then we don't have something that is going to actually work. And we, you know, I keep on hearing, you know, I, I'm a co-sponsor of Medicare for all, but then we're talking about what's affordable. That's completely subjective. Mm. Because if you're someone like I was as a single mom, uh, $50 a month 
is not affordable to me. $1 an extra expense a month is not affordable to me when I'm trying to struggle just to pay the utilities, right? Um, and I went my entire 20s without having health insurance. Um, so, you know, we have to be, have people who are in office who are going to actually, we need to increase the numbers. And then we need to have someone who's in office who's going to be organizing and getting people right up. We need to be in not just blue districts, but purple districts, red districts, because this is not a Democrat versus Republican issue. This is a we the people issue. And we have to be coming at it nonstop, using every opportunity to message on this um, and, and actually doing the work on the grounds and in the communities and organizing. That's I mean, that's the only way that I see that we're going to have a pathway forward. Well, and I think you make a key point because um, with regards to California, since they pull the bill, they don't vote on it. You don't know who was going to vote which way. But we do know which candidates were taking corporate money. Mm. We do know who was, you know, potentially being swayed by that money. And so one way to ensure that you have better representatives is just, you know, don't support people who are going to take that kind of money because then they may say all the right things just like Gavin Newsom did. I mean, he ran hard on single payer and was courting the the nurses union and all of that, saying all the right things. But mm. you can't trust them if they're still taking cash from big pharma or health insurance industry or any of these companies. Well, it's not it's, it's also in addition to that. It's, you know, I think that there it's it's not talked about enough the importance of lived experience. Mm. You know, we have a bunch of representatives that have no idea what it's like to struggle. They've never been in that struggle. They don't understand what it's like to, to try to come up with food to feed your kids and going to pantries and, and not having a, a vehicle and in one, you know, one instance away from being homeless. I mean, if your car breaks down, you can't get to work. You don't have a savings account. You don't know. I mean, they don't understand that struggle that, you know, and they don't understand what it's like to lose somebody because they don't have health insurance. I mean, that lived experience, we need that in Congress, because let me tell you, that lived experience, losing my daughter to this and waking up still, I mean, I'm in this going into seven years since her death waking up every day of my life and I cry every day of my life still. I mean, I'm tearing up now thinking about it, knowing I'm never going to see her again and knowing that her, her future was snuffed out from her. That is a fire in me that will drive me to do the actual work that needs to be done, right? And, and it's that fight that we're missing in Congress because they don't have the lived experience and they're bought out. So you put those two things together and we have what we have now, which is a bunch of complacent leadership. And it's why we're at risk, it's a Democratic Party is at risk of losing the House and the Senate and possibly the presidency because there's promises made, but they never deliver. We need to increase the number of people that have this lived experience, have that fire and willing and have the, the guts to actually go in there and fight against uh, you know, the powers to be. I'm sure everybody can see now why you're my favorite. Um, I, I rarely, if ever, have done this in the middle of a show. Usually I wait till the end. But just tell everybody now how they can donate to your campaign because, you know, you got me ready to <laughs> to start a super PAC in your name and donate my entire <laughs> – to tell my house and put, them, <laughs> put it all in there. So tell everybody how they can donate to you. <laughs> 
you know, this is one of the most critical points in my campaign right now. We are at that critical moment where we do need funding. We have to be able to get up into that uptick of the campaign, and they are coming after me already. Um, so the, the best way that you can support me right now is, is donating to my campaign. And you can go to amy.vegas slash crystal slash Kyle. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can donate there. If you can't remember all of that, just go to amy.vegas and you can, uh, you know, find out more about me and also donate. Um, we don't need us to raise as much as our opponents, but we do need to raise enough. And I need to be out getting more, getting my name out there and more methods. Um, so we're, we've been knocking tens of thousands of doors already, but we do need to get billboards. We need to get signs. We need to be able to get more literature so this is the most pivotal point um, right now in, the, in this campaign, and this is a winnable race. Uh, and I will, they're, they're afraid of me because they know there is nothing, I say this all the time, there's nothing that you have that I want. Unless you can resurrect my daughter from the dead, everybody's gonna have to give me a pass then and let me be, all, be bought all the hell out. <laughs> but besides that, and I don't see that happening, unfortunately, there's nothing they have that I want. I mean. I walked away from a, a career as an executive. I walked away from a job that essentially paid more than a congressional member um, because I don't care about the money. I don't care about the prestige. I just want to go in. I want to fulfill my promise to Shalin and fulfill my promise to this nation that I was going to fight for them like I, was, I would fight for my daughter. That's why I want to get into Congress. And Amy, I think it's important what you said about lived experience, too, because it's not an accident that you have so few people in Congress who have lived anything like the struggles that you've seen in your life. I mean, it's a millionaire's club. And even as paltry as the representation is for like women and people of color, we've actually made more progress on that front than we have on class diversity. You have... Right. Almost no, very, very few. We could count them on one hand. I have the, you want me to you tell got, you the numbers? Yeah, yeah. So as of 2020, over half of the members of Congress were millionaires. And the median net worth of members was approximately $1 million. And the number of people who could actually be considered working class or who do the jobs that, you know, normal Americans do is very, very slim. So what I would love for you to talk about is why that is. What are the structural barriers that you've seen that you've come face to face with um, that prevent a lot of ordinary people who have a passion, who have that lived experience, who are completely, you know, unwilling to be bought out from ever having the opportunity to run and to serve? You know, the first barrier that we had in 2018, which I think we've gotten a lot better at, but we still have room for improvement, was having the infrastructure set up and the knowledge base on how to run um, progressive campaigns and to support progressive campaigns. Um, the number one barrier besides that is that we are working class. I am still working. <laughs> I work and I am running. Um, and so we have working class individuals that don't have a bank account to fall back on and don't have the luxury of quitting their job to run for office. Um, and then we run up against moneyed interest, whereas in my case, my opponent is one of the wealthiest members in Congress, one of the wealthier, um, and is, you know, we are neck to neck on individual contributions where she's out raising me are the corporate PACs, mm -hmm. right? We don't have that ability to raise that, those kind of funds. 
And, you know, there's also, you know, with the, with the progressive movement, you know, there, there are a lot of progressives running, um, but we also have people who are tired, who are, who are hoping that we're going to have change overnight. And I get it, man. I'm, I'm, I'm so, it's been seven years and I'm still like, I'm, I'm still as angry as I was the first day that she passed away. And sometimes, you know, I want to say, man, this is so hard. And it's like, we should have, we should have more movement. But, you know, then I think back to like even the civil rights movement, it didn't happen overnight. And there was a lot of sacrifice and there was a lot that had to go into that, even the right, getting the women the rights to vote, right? These things don't happen overnight and we can't get tired out. We need to have people who are going to come in and we need the progressives to know that, listen, we have to be all in this together. We need as much as you possibly can to help us to contribute, to donate your time, uh, to, to elevate our messages. We need that because what we're going against is much larger than what we have in our, in our toolbox, right? And it can be done. We've seen it being done. It's just a much harder road to get there. We don't have the D-trip behind us helping funding. We don't have the corporate money flowing in, right? And we don't, and a lot of times we have to fight to get earned media, right? And to get our voice out there and our message. So the pathway is, 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 is a much harder pathway for us to get in, but it is possible. It is possible. We just need, you know, the, the support financially, the support with your, your, what does Nina like to say, your treasure, talent, and time. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what we need. And we need to, you know, to take a look at who's running um, and, and make sure that you're really supporting that, that individual. Um, I do believe that my race is one of the races to watch this cycle. It is, it is a very winnable race. And we definitely can have a very strong voice in Congress. The, uh, to your point, the, the establishment and all those big health insurance companies, they want people to disengage and they want people to do self-disenfranchisement because they're fed up. And even on that alone, I say, fuck them. I'm going to do the opposite because that's what they want me to do. Um, But I also love your point about solidarity as well. It's needed now more than ever. People need to come together, put whatever differences there are aside to try to get things across the finish line that we all agree on. Because if there's anything that unites the left, it's Medicare for all, like it's getting everybody healthcare in this country. You mentioned earlier that you uh, learned from the previous campaign and that uh, in terms of strategy and how to get to the finish line, uh, there's been improvements and there's been you know new ideas that you've seen work and we've learned from Corey, et cetera. Uh, speak a little bit about those strategies that you've learned. So when we we were running in, in, in 2018, like, I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but like if there was any, you know, if there was any consultants that would work with someone primarying a Democrat, they would be on a blacklist, which I am proudly on. <laughs> uh, you know, so like we didn't have the institutional knowledge. Um, and in my case, we put everything into one bucket, which was just the ground game. But you need to be, you need to to have a real mixture. You need to be able to raise the money to get into a diverse, you know, uh, ways of reaching out to people. Uh, Las Vegas is is also a unique district in that we are a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week community, right? People are working nonstop. So what would work, let's say, like in AOC's district or even in Corey's isn't going to translate into Nevada. You know, we have to have the funds to get on TV. We have to have the funds to actually do some mailers. 
We have to have the funds to be on radio. We have to be able to have um, people who are out in the field overseeing our volunteers, working at very odd hours to reach people, you know, where they're at and when they're actually awake and, and, and working, right? So, you know, I think we had a very singular mind that we can do this. Like, uh, I'd say the way to translate this so people don't understand is like, I think everyone thought we could do like Bernie does and just do very small donations and go out and uh, just hit the ground, hit doors, dock doors, and then that would be our pathway to victory. And they'd hear our message and they'd know that, okay, this is who we need to vote for. Unfortunately, we do have to be able to raise quite a bit more and we have to be able to reach people who are able to invest, you know, uh, more, quite a bit more than $27 um, at a time because we don't have the same reach as, as Bernie Sanders, right? right. Yeah, uh, we no have national to, media. And, no national media is the right. problem, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of time that has to be put into call time, to calling up donors and, and getting them, you know, interested and, and invested into your campaign. Um, and then, you know, also being uh, able to get onto those different uh, touch points, right? Uh, so that people need to see and hear from you at least three to four times to have it ingrained that, yes, I'm going to vote for Amy. And then we have to call. And and that's where the phone banks come in and volunteers and knocking doors. All of those things are so necessary. Um, And it's not waiting till the last moment. If you wait till like right before, I hear everybody saying, well, I'm going to wait till later, you know, till it's right before the, the primary. Well, it's too late then. Because, you know, we have early vote. And we have to be able to, you know, these things require us to have money to put in early to get the message out. Um, and so start donating now to your preferred candidates because that's when they can use the money and that's where it goes the farthest, right? That's where that money actually translates the most into the campaign and really leads for a pathway to victory. Amy, uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about is um, you were Nevada State co-chair for Bernie 2020. Mm. Um First of all, can we relive the glory? Oh. What was it like? <laughs> oh, my God. What did it feel like? I was so pumped. Pump it into my veins <laughs> the night that he, you know, just blew everybody away in the caucuses and MSNBC anchors were practically crying. You, you're going to make me cry twice in this podcast. <laughs> Jesus Christ, for very different reasons. <laughs> that was coming full circle for me, too, because I remember when I was running, everybody's like, you know, we're not interested in Medicare for all. We're not interested in the Bernie bro and all this kind of stuff. I wanted to get on the microphone so bad to the news and be like, in your face, in your face. <laughs> we all wanted that. We Nevada. all wanted that. Nevada is and the best state. Me. That's going to be the hardest thing for me in Congress is to control my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I wanted, you know, that was an amazing, amazing night. Um, it was all the hard work, not just, you know, of the paid people, but like we have some amazing frontline communities, um, you know, that were involved in helping Bernie uh, get get that landslide victory. And those frontline communities are so uh, important. And it was amazing to see all their hard work and everyone's hard work. And I remember being at the polls, we weren't even done. And we're hearing that Bernie won. And I'm just like screaming like, yes. And we thought that that definitely was like, This time we're going all the way in, right? And it seemed like after that, everything went to hell because like then we had COVID and like, it was just <sighs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. night. That night will remain in my memory for a long time because it is even a motivating, motivational drive. Listen, you know, that was an amazing thing. Yes, we didn't get the end result we wanted, but that entire presidential primary 
was a victory because remember just, you know, four years prior, they were saying all these things were pie in the sky that whenever now everybody had to answer to his platform and where they stood on it. Yes. It's not happening as fast as we want. And I get it, but this is a victory and this is everything builds on top of each other and builds. I'm not willing to sit back and say, well, it's not, it's not, it's not happening fast enough. So I give up. I'm going to wait till everything falls into place. So I have the party I want to have everything. Everything's where it needs to be. No, no. I'm going to keep building on that. I'm going to keep on building on infrastructure and we're going to keep on, you know, pleading to the people's hearts and minds because they, like you, like you said earlier, like, like we were discussing, they want us to tire out. I'm not tiring out. There's nothing you can do to make me tire out because every day I wake up, I know the price that's paid, whether it's from healthcare, whether it's from poverty, whether it's from police brutality or environmental impacts, you know, uh, we have to keep on fighting on, on a mass scale and just not, and not get disenfranchised, but get bolder Yeah, and and become more fierce. Yeah. And that's the, uh, I mean, look, that's how greatness is made. You know, it's when, when things are not going well and when times are rough, can you dig it out of the dirt? Can you, you know, plow ahead? And, you know, to make a sports analogy, the greatest ever, when they're in those horrendous circumstances, that's when they really shine. And that's when they show who they are. Michael Jordan with that game when he had the flu and, you know, he was very almost like passing out at the end of it, but he did what he does. Tiger Woods winning the U.S. Open on a broken leg. I mean, I could go on and on here. Like, that's what it's all about. And to get back to the thing you brought up about the night Bernie won Nevada, I'm not kidding when I say that is a feeling that I have never experienced before and never experienced since. So there's all types of like, you know, personal fulfillment and happiness mm-hmm. is is definitely, you know, a thing I've felt um, from little successes here and there, personal successes, you feel stuff. But that was a different kind of joy of like, it's not just about me. It's like a collective, Mm. you know what I mean? Like it was emanating from every Mm. pore of my body, this feeling of like, because the conversation at the time, I don't know if you guys remember this, was, so is Bernie going to win a plurality of the delegates and then they're going to try to steal it from him at the convention or is he going to win a majority? Mm -hmm. That was the only, like those were the two options because never to that point in history had somebody won the first three effectively and then not gone on to win. So I was just, I was so overjoyed. I was so happy. And then of course you had, um, what was, I called it like, Red Sunday or Bloody something. Sunday, Bloody Sunday yeah. when Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar dropped out and endorsed Biden. And they did out right before one of the big voting days, Super Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And so that like coalesced all the vote to Biden and just like handed it to him on a silver platter. And then the media went all, like that last debate. Remember that last debate when Bernie, they were trying to like throw it in Bernie's face, like that he like loves Che Guevara and Fidel Castro in Cuba. And the whole debate was like, you're a commie, bro. Aren't you a commie? You're a commie. And then the media went all in hammering and they all coalesced around Biden. And it was like, you saw this slow motion degradation. But yeah, again, to, I don't want to end this on a sad note. I, to, the, to the happy point, like you said, and that's why I admire you and I respect you so much. And that's why I'm so happy that you're running again. You view it as like, I don't, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't even have the option. Like I have to do this. This fight is in me. This passion is who I am. And we're going to keep going until we win. Like, regardless, we have to do it. And so that's why, you know, it's what you're doing is very admirable. And uh, it I, honestly, it, it makes, it gives me a spark too. It makes me yeah. feel like, let's go get it, you know? Yeah. And Amy, I do want to know more about 
I think Nevada's politics are really interesting. And I come from the state of Virginia. Uh, I still live in the state of Virginia. And I oftentimes contrast the two states because in Virginia, you have a Democratic Party that is very dominated by the northern Virginia suburbs, in spite of the fact that Democrats controlled up until recently the governor's mansion and the Senate and the House. It still was one of the worst states in the entire country in terms of labor rights. In Nevada, you have a very different party and you have a lot of um, like the labor movement is extraordinarily important to the Democratic Party in Nevada. And so you have a more working class base in the state than you do in a state like Virginia. And I think what we saw in Bernie's victory there, and this is what I want to get your take on, was how important it was ultimately to have that working class base in terms of being able to, you know, vote for a candidate like Bernie Sanders, who has this universal agenda that is going to really impact people's, you know, ability to just provide the basics for their family and live a decent life. Yeah, you know, and, and yes, that is true. Uh, in Las Vegas, we are one of the hardest hit whenever there's a crisis because of the nature of our city and what our, you know, uh, economy is built on is tourism. So when, you know, when we talk about even what happened and the effects of COVID, we were one of the hardest hit, right? And so, you know, the, the, whole, the whole experience of Las Vegas is built on the back of the workers that live and reside in Las Vegas, and so when they, when we are hit with things like, you know, the climate, for instance, it's the fastest warming, uh, fastest growing city. And it is right now we're facing, you know, one of the largest uh, land giveaway bills um, being pushed through by my opponent to increase the size of Las Vegas by the size of Washington, D.C., as we are running out of water, literally. I mean, you can see the bathtub ring around Lake Mead, right? Mm. Um, and, and it always affects disproportionately our communities that are most at risk, right? They're the ones that have the highest, you know, um, bad outcomes from what's happening in our environment. And they're the ones that will be affected the most by even this, this proposed legislation. Um, when we talk about healthcare, we have some of the poorest healthcare outcomes. We have some, some of the lowest scores in our education. And we are a very diverse city. We are like a real example of what, you know, this country will eventually become. I mean, we are very diverse with many different types of communities that all have different needs. And unfortunately, I know I can speak for my district, we have someone who's become very complacent. So they are looking for a reason to vote and are somebody who's going to help and actually understands what they're going through and gives those frontline community organizers a seat, an actual seat at the table, who is when they're getting ready to do legis legislation is bringing those key people in to say, how can I write this legislation? What do I need to include that's gonna make the biggest impact for the people that you're fighting for on the ground, right? We're missing that in, in Nevada. We're missing that in the leadership. And that's what they're, they're, they are really wanting to see. And I, you can see that in even in this district, when it was the bluest, strongest Democratic uh, seat in the state, it consistently for the past 10 years has delivered 20,000 fewer Democrat votes than its counterpart, which is a Republican held seat up north. Because there's a there is a lack of enthusiasm, because they're not addressing the needs of the working class, and that is where I am coming out. I'm saying I am the candidate of the working class. Um, you know, I am the one who understands what that struggle's like. I will bring that fight with me to Congress, 
And so that is what we're seeing here in the state of Nevada. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that across this country because, you know, the, the wealth disparity is only increasing. You know, the wealthy have only become, you know, much more wealthy during the, the COVID crisis, while the working class have have now even be, are now even in a worse position than they were before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, we saw when we were trying to get through things in the Build Back Better bill, you know, there was only a handful of people that were willing to vote against the infrastructure bill, which was largely a giveaway to corporations in order to make sure that we had the leverage to force them to vote on the Build Back Better. But we see that they're lacking the courage that's necessary to actually deliver. And that's what we need more people with that courage and that lived experience in there that are going to get buck the system. Amy, how would you sort of orient yourself vis-a-vis the the Democratic Party establishment? Because, look, I think everybody's pretty persuaded that you're not going to be bought off, that you are going to fight for Medicare for all uh, with every fiber of your being for the rest of your life until it's accomplished. Um, What does that look like? tactically if you're a member of Congress? Are there things that you would have done differently from how the squad did them? How would you sort of, um, how would you push back against the neoliberal direction of the Democratic uh, establishment? How do you think about those things in terms of what you would actually do as a member of Congress? You know, I'm not a member yet, so it's kind of hard to say exactly not knowing what's going on (laughs) behind the scenes, but um, to me, that has, I think, little effect on what type of uh, leader I'd be in Congress. You know, I, I am somebody who I understand that there are certain things that, you know, we definitely can work across the aisle on. There are certain things that we definitely need to be uh, making sure that we, we are, you know, working in unison and to trying to find compromises when it's acceptable. That's the key point. When we're talking about lives, we're talking about people's ability to survive and thrive. When we're talking about those things, I think that I would like to see us having more strategic discussions and being prepared for those moments. You know, there was a lot of uh, things thrown out that, you know, uh, possibilities that we could have done. But what what I see, you know, is that we have, you know, a, a, a newly formed squad of new members that, you know, there wasn't a lot of time to actually have, you know, strategic discussions, but, you know, those things need to be happening behind the scenes, you know, on a continual basis and being prepared at a moment's notice to know where, where, where that support group stands on these things so that we can start drawing our own lines in the sand. Republicans are very good at this. They will say, well, I'm not doing it. This is my line in the sand. And then we see Democrats falling all over themselves to, to meet that line. We come out with the bottom of what will, will, will the bare bottom of what we'll accept. And, and we start always at that negotiating place. And then we, we're, we're afraid to draw our own land, their own lines in the sand. Yeah. Uh, the, it's necessary. That's how come they've gained so much control. That's why they're able to push the legislation through. They're not worried about the other party's feelings and, and making sure that we're working together. You don't hear that kind of talk coming from the Republicans. I feel as Democrats, we need to start being more bold and having our own lines in the sands. Well, the if corporate this, the corporate Democrats aren't afraid of it either. I mean, and this is, I was just thinking about early on in the Build Back Better negotiations, there's all this conversation about like, oh, we can't negotiate too hard because then we'll blow the whole thing up. Well, the whole thing got blown right. up anyway. It didn't happen anyway. They're perfectly happy to, you know, draw their 
hard lines and derail in, you know, on their terrible politics. So there has to be an equal sort of fortitude and coordinated strategy. You know, yeah, this is something, Amy, I've talked about this quite a bit. I think the real trick, the real key to success for uh, an elected Democrat in Congress is to steal the tactics that worked from the Tea Party. So namely, like you said, you don't even need the, you know, all the, you don't need like 100% of the Democrats to be aligned with our values. Or what even you the need entire is, Progressive Caucus. Well, that's right. And that's my point. So what you need is, let's say you have eight or 10 uh, people who you trust, who you respect, who you know, uh, you strategize with them. So let's say for argument's sake, you, Ilhan, Cory Bush, like that's just to, just to name a few. And you guys reach out to whoever you trust, whoever you formed relationships with. And then, it, and then, you know, you say, hey, look, let's make a little bit of good trouble. Let's make a little bit of noise here. And how about we block anything and everything that's going to come through Congress unless and until Joe Biden breaks out his executive order pen and abolishes student loan debt or lowers prescription drug prices or signs an emergency executive order to your point about of giving people uh, health care during the COVID crisis, which he has the ability to do. Right. So that that's the thing is that you need to recognize your leverage and then use that leverage by crafting a relationship with a small but dedicated number of progressives and then just throw your weight around and like be prepared to be hated and smeared well that's right the media would come after you relentlessly but as and this is why i love you though amy because i know even given an onslaught and this is why i love nina turner as well even yeah. given the media onslaught what you would do is look right back at them and say my daughter died because she didn't have health care and I'm fighting for everybody to have health care. So you can fuck right off with your <laughs> smears, you know. So and that's the path. That's the path to victory. And but it requires dedication, vision, leadership. And thankfully, you know, you're in that fight and I view you as one of those leaders. Yeah, if they think they're going to hurt me with their attacks and their smears, I mean, bring it on. Because there's really nothing. There's no way that you can hurt me any more than I'm, I'm already hurt. Um, and, and quite honestly, I, I welcome it. I welcome their their smears and their attacks, because when we're talking about lives, when we're talking about people's ability to not just survive but thrive and protecting people, uh, you know that is that is my number one goal. Um, you know, I'm not interested in their corporate money. We're not taking a dime of corporate money in this in this you know uh, campaign. I'm not interested in being part of the good old boys club. I'm not interested in being invited to your fancy fundraisers. What I'm interested in is serving not only the constituents of, of this district, but also, you know, by extension, just by the nature of being in, in, in U.S., you know, the House of Representatives, um, the people of this country. Um, that's, that is where my interest is. And, you know, the, these attacks, I mean, good luck to them. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm used to it. What else? I mean, <laughs> I don't think there's anything new they can come up with. Maybe. Um, I, I should do one of those little TikToks where you have, or, or one of those little videos where you sit down and, and just reply to all the people that have all the nasty things to say. Amy, you're a superstar. It's, tell everybody um, also how they could volunteer for your campaign. If anybody's listening to this in Las Vegas and they want to, uh, they want to volunteer for your campaign, how would they go about doing that? Yeah. If you go to amy.vegas, um, it will take you to my website where we have a volunteer sign up. Um, we are, you know, out there um, right now hitting it throughout the week and on weekends. Uh, we have different schedules available. We also have uh, the availability to um, partake in uh, phone banking. 
definitely going to need people for that. Um, so yeah, so definitely go to amy.vegas and uh, we could definitely, you know, could use all the help we can get. We've only got 82 days until the primary. Mm. This isn't a far off. And that's, that's the primary. I mean, that's not, you know, early votes, even less than that. So we, we definitely, you know, could use everybody on board right now. Like I, like I said earlier in, in this program, that this is the key point in this, in this uh, race. And uh, we need to get all, all, all the help we can, both with volunteering, with financial support, um, and, and helping, you know, also, you know, spread our message on, on all the different media platforms, letting everyone know that, you know, about this campaign. Uh, that's that's definitely would be uh, very pivotal in helping us, uh, you know, execute our pathway to victory. Yeah, everybody go donate to Amy if you can. I'm certainly going to do it. Uh, if you can volunteer, go volunteer. And uh, it's very rare you hear me say this about somebody who's running for office or who is a politician, but with 100% certainty, I trust her. I trust her, guys. So that that's... There that is for what it's worth. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Best of luck to you, and we'll stay in touch. Yeah, great to talk to you, Amy. Thank you. It's great being on. That was Amy Valela, and um, Kyle, she is an incredibly courageous, incredibly forceful person, and it would be amazing to have her in Congress. We didn't even get into, uh, after the fact, you know, she's talking about her husband is active duty military, and she has very clear and very powerful views on foreign policy as well, which would be incredibly valuable in Congress. Yeah, yeah, no, she's uh, she's the total package for Congress. There's no doubt about it. I mean, she is, like I said, being involved with Justice Democrats from the beginning, um, I, I'm very critical of everything. And she was one who stood out as like, oh, she's here for all the right reasons. She means it in her soul. It's her passion. It's driving her. And nothing's going to fucking stop her. Nothing's going to stop her, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, you saw it there. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I was certainly tearing up as I was listening to her tell her story. And this that's the <laughs> third time, I, you know, that's the third time I've heard her tell it. I covered it on my show before uh, I, I knew her or met her before she was even running for office. I covered her story. Then I interviewed her for her last run, and um, I, you know, felt the same way about it. And now again, I mean, I've, third time I've heard it, I'm still like, Jesus Christ, could I'm, you imagine? I'm about to cry just thinking about it because, it's terrible. I mean, as a mom, there's nothing I can imagine more horrible than losing a kid. And to lose it, to lose a child when it's completely preventable completely it's, preventable it's just it's I, I cannot imagine the pain it's all about our priorities in the country it's all about our priorities we easily could do a single-payer medicare for all system every other developed country has one version or another of a universal health care system yeah. every study that comes back on it of course there was that old world health organization study we're ranked number 37th in the world when it comes to health care then there's the commonwealth fund studies which showed we were ranked 11th out of 11 with our health care system this is a policy choice. That's what it is. It's a choice that's made by our politicians as a direct result of them taking money from Aetna and Humana and Blue Cross Blue Shield and every single for-profit rapacious health insurance company under the sun. And don't get it twisted. What are these companies but a mafia middleman that price gouges you? Yeah. There's no reason for them. Why would you have to give money to a third party for them to then give it to your health care provider. Well, and it's even worse than that, which she lays down, because it'd be one thing if they were just price gouging you, but they were doing a good job. But no, their entire incentive is just 
profit. It's not health. It's not your well-being. And so it's no surprise that we end up with the terrible health outcomes that we have. And how do they make the most money? They make the most money by denying the most care. People don't know. There used to be entire departments within these health insurance companies. This is pre-Obamacare. Obamacare actually did something on this at least. But there was a whole process called rescission. Mm -hmm. And rescission means let's try to find any reason under the sun to not pay out on a claim that somebody's asking for. There was a famous example, one that I covered on my show. Um, Somebody had cancer and they were denied their treatment because they previously had acne and didn't disclose it. And that was viewed as a pre-existing condition. This is what we're talking about in this country, guys. This is what we're talking about. It's totally unacceptable. I mean, all people want is the basics, man. It's not that much to ask for. It's not that much to ask for that when you get sick, you get help, and you don't go bankrupt. Yeah. I think it's also really important to talk to someone like Amy, who is so clearly mission-driven, who is so clearly not going to be thrown off by, like, the media not being nice to her or whatever. Right. Because yes. as exactly. as she said— the pain that she's been through, you think she cares about some freaking, like, you know, MSNBC commentator saying something snide about her? She doesn't give a shit. She's in it because of the cause. And I think it's really important to actually speak with human beings who are running and trying to effectuate change because it helps to dispel the caricaturish notion that everyone is just going to be sold out. Nothing can ever work. No one who's principled would ever sort of put themselves in this position and actually run for office and and try to win. You know, she's correct. We don't have the luxury of waiting for the perfect time, the perfect party, the perfect, you know, revolutionary moment. We have to use the tools at our disposal right now. And so to support someone like her who's going to be a clear and forceful and consistent moral voice in Congress, frankly, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, and and that's it. We need fighters. We need fighters. And we need people who understand that the the process is the goal. It is the ends in and of itself, that the virtuousness is in the fight. So it's not about, we got to get to this end goal, and if we don't get to this end goal, we throw our hands up, and that's the end of it. And it was all worthless. Right. The, The process is the meaning of it. That's the purpose of it, is you have to fight the entire time. And unfortunately, it is a very common thing on the left where people want to tap out or just start from scratch and make their lives even harder. It's like, no, you got to you gotta do Occam's Razor. Do the thing that, this isn't really Occam's Razor, but do the thing that's the, the clearest path to victory and do a full court press and go all in and don't stop until you get there. Yeah, and you know, and you know what? Listen, we talked last week with Christian Smalls about the disappointments of AOC and Jamal Bowman and even Bernie sort of backing out of supporting them in the Amazon labor fight. And I don't think anyone should hesitate to criticize where it's appropriate. But I also want to say I've been really grateful for Ilhan's voice during the Ukraine crisis. She's the only one who said, hey, maybe don't implode their entire economy. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's that's (laughs) been and she got smeared. Absolutely smeared mm-hmm, for that mm-hmm. and called like racist somehow. I mean, it was just like everything <laughs> you could throw at her for You're just racist. saying, hey, maybe we should step back and think about the actions that we are taking here in a very short period of time. So I've been tremendously grateful for her courageous voice um, with regards to Ukraine. Very lonely voice in that. And I was tremendously grateful for Corey's voice during the um, housing, you know, the debate about ending the um, housing. Eviction moratorium. Yeah, yeah. the eviction Mm -hmm. moratorium. Exactly. When she camped down on the steps and she shamed them. 
into extending the eviction moratorium. I mean, that was really powerful without her there and her visceral understanding of what it is like to be kicked out of your home Mm -hmm. and in your car with your babies then, you know, there would have been more people who were evicted. It, it had a real-world impact because she shamed the leadership and forced the public's understanding of the distance between what they claim are their ideals and what they're actually doing. So we shouldn't pretend like having these individuals in Congress has been worthless and it hasn't made any difference whatsoever. And to bring it full circle to what we talked about in the intro, uh, think about Ted Cruz and then think about Amy Valella and look at the difference between them. Like Ted Cruz's whole existence is oh, how do I get my, my name bigger and me, 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 me. I'm Ted Cruz. Me. I'm Ted Cruz. Me. <laughs> like that's what he's all about. That's what he's all about. And Amy's like, this literally has nothing to do with me personally. This is all about Medicare for all. Like I just want to make sure nobody experiences the pain that I felt because of what happened with my da- daughter. She wants to just stop that pain for other people yeah. because she knows what Un- it's like. Unconditionally, too. Mm-hmm. Unconditionally. Yep. yep. So um, very powerful talking to her. Thank you, Amy, for the time. Guys, we'll make sure and put the links in there so that you can go and contribute to her campaign if you are able. Because yeah. she's mm-hmm. definitely one that is worthy of your support. Yeah, and I'm 100% donating for sure. Okay. Um, all right, guys. We love you. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you to everybody who uh, pays the $5 a month and gets the video version a day early. And everybody else who does not, please consider it. Uh, We don't take any corporate money. We don't take any ad money. We don't read ads. We don't have any ads that roll on the screen. If there are any that roll on screen on YouTube, that's just because AdSense is like ridiculous. And even if I turn off monetization, sometimes they put on Mm -hmm. their own monetization. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we only fund this show through, you know, the $5 that you guys give. So uh, again, thank you for everybody who does it. And if you don't, please consider it. We would appreciate uh, your support greatly. And uh, yeah, love you guys. And we'll talk to you soon. Love you. all have a good weekend.